Come on, y'all can give it up for the worship team. Y'all can be seated. Welcome to City Life. Whether you are here in a pew or you are watching online, I want to welcome you. I also, as we get started tonight, I want to give a shout out to, uh, I believe it's Pioneer Church, yes, that produced that Black History Month video that was amazing. Uh, I don't know what you guys are doing this Black History Month. I know I've been watching Show uh, Baraka. He's a musician, also author now. He's been doing daily Black History Month videos highlighting uh, historical figures some I didn't even know about. But I know for me this week, I've been reflecting a lot on the life of Frederick Douglass. Like, I got the, the, the mug here, but it's been a long time since I opened up his, his autobiography. It's probably been years, if not decades, since I opened this book up like I did this week. And it's powerful because this book, it's his witness. It's his firsthand account to life as a slave and then a former slave and an abolitionist. And you talk about loudest witnesses. I'm reading this book 127 years after his death. And what's both funny and sobering is that he throws an appendix in the back of the book. It's, it's funny the way he states it because he's like, you know, I was reading back over this manuscript and I realized I'm really hard on the church. <laughs> he's like, I'm calling out a, a, a lot of Christians because there were so-called Christians that were keeping other human beings created in the image of God as slaves. So rightfully so. But in his appendix, he's like, I don't want you to think that just because I'm critical of the church and these Christians that I, I'm not a religious person or I don't, I'm not a Christian myself. But he says this powerful quote in his appendix that between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. What he's saying here is that the witness and values of the American church in the 19th century, ripe as it was with slavery, he's like, my values and my witness don't line up with that, so that's why I'm calling it out. And I share that tonight because we have an American church, we've been called again to reflect on our values, not by the prophetic voice of a, a freed slave, but by a season, a season of COVID, right? When there's a, a momentary crisis in life, we might be thrown off for a moment, and then often we can just recalibrate to how we were before, when it's just a momentary crisis. But when there is a season of crisis, a prolonged crisis, a, a lengthy crisis like the one we've been in, so often there's a, a reflection, a deep reflection we can get into with our values, especially when you begin to reestablish what you might call your new normal. Like, what am I reinserting into my life and why? Maybe you found yourself asking questions like, do I want this back in my life? Right? What am, why am I doing this? Does this truly matter? We can be prompted to rethink our ambitions, even recalculate the course of our life in seasons like the one we're in. And for many who are diving back in church, others who maybe aren't coming back to church at all, and then some who maybe are just dipping their toes slowly to get reacclimated to church coming out of this, questions arise with the values we're highlighting in this series. We're talking about community. You might ask, does community really matter? Right? Or, or do we keep living distanced? You know, when you live distance, there's a lot less conflict and a lot less friction because in community, all that can happen. So do I really want to insert it back into my life? Does generosity really matter? Or do I cling to my resources in times of uncertainty? Do I really want to insert it back into my life? Does diversity really matter? Or do I keep my circle small with those that think and, and, and believe like me? Because again, there's a lot less conflict that way. Does ministry really matter? Our best effort, or, or is my time and effort best invested elsewhere? Do I want to reinsert ministry into my life? And for us, the answer to each of these is yes. Because when we re-examine or look at our foundational values as a church, these four are present. Diversity, 
which we're calling our warmest welcome. Pastor Fred preached on it last week. Ministry, our best effort. Community, our strongest bond. Generosity, our boldest gift. And the tagline to this series is church values from Pentecost to present. Because when you look at the church in Acts, these values were present then too. And as we dig into ministry tonight, I want to turn to Acts again, as Pastor Fred did last week. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. So you can turn there uh, tonight, right now, or maybe you're swiping there on your phone. But as you're doing that, I remember a quote. I don't even remember who said it. <laughs> but they said, why are the Gospels followed by Acts? Because after you receive the gospel, we ought to see some action. See, grace doesn't displace effort. I think sometimes we get it twisted. Ephesians 2 doesn't just say that you're saved by grace through faith, not by works so no man can boast. It also says, immediately after that, that we're saved to do the works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And that takes effort. So tonight I'm preaching on ministry, our best effort. But again, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. <clears throat> says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also six other names I'm not going to pronounce, a convert to Judaism. They, they prepared these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray again. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't have Jesus alone as the chief cornerstone. We also have your word, God, with these values of the early church. We don't have to guess. They're right there for us in this book of Acts, God. So I pray that we would keep them in our foundation as a church, keep them in our foundation as believers so that we can make Jesus known and easy to find here in the 757. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Again, give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. We say yes, Holy Spirit, to whatever you want to speak tonight. And everybody said amen. So I know I've I've shared this repeatedly, but it's because I'm passionate about it. You know, you talk a lot about what you're passionate about. I like art. I was an art major at William & Mary. So I enjoy painting. I like painting. And uh, as an art major, you have to take a lot of art history classes. And as much as I love art, those are insanely boring. Just the way they test it, the way they teach it. Uh, there's got to be a better way. But uh, to redeem the time, when I know I'm going to paint and there's a subject, that subject matter that would interest me enough to paint it, I like to redeem the time by like hearkening back to some classic paintings. So one that they've got a picture of in the slides is uh, this one <clears throat> that they'll pull up. And on the left, you can see work in progress, what artists would call a whip. And uh, it's from Endgame, right? But it's hearkening back to this famous painting from the 18th century. One of the most famous paintings, it hangs in the Louvre and it's called the Oath of the Horati. And I roll my R's because in the Latin, you're supposed to roll your R's. But for your sake and my sake, as I tell the story, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> But the reason I bring this up is to share the story of this painting that I learned way, way back in art history class. And the account is from early Roman history when Rome was at war with the nearby city of Alba Longa, if I'm saying that right. They were in a conflict. And so the leader of the Alban Longans, if you would say that, their leader realized 
that after they had this conflict, after they did battle, as much damage as they would inflict on each other, they also had a common enemy that was a neighbor that would just swoop in and take them both out. So what he said to the Roman general is, why don't we engage in single combat? Now, what's single combat? It's when one warrior or soldier from each army fights another to resolve the conflict. What emerged, though, in this case was even more remarkable. It was basically triple combat. Each of these armies had a set of triplets within them, and those triplets agreed to fight and determine the course of this battle. Right? Sounds like fabricated mythology, not something grounded in reality or real history. Not just the pair of triplets, but this whole idea of single combat. I remember I was learning about it. I was like, this is wild stuff. And I remember in college, I went down the rabbit hole, not just because of that painting, but because at that same time, Wolfgang Peterson produced the movie Troy, based on the Trojan War. And it famously begins with Brad Pitt in his most chiseled form, playing the role of Achilles, challenging the opposing army's best warrior to battle, dispatching him in like nine seconds, and then turning around saying, is there no one else? Not quite as good as Are You Not Entertained, probably like a couple tiers below it, but still, it was, as a college male, I was like, okay, okay. But it's one of multiple instances in Troy where we see single combat. Two giant armies, right? They got all these soldiers, and yet multiple times that day, they'll be like, oh, we're just going to let two soldiers fight, and that'll just determine the outcome today. And I think, man, no king would actually do this, right? Like, put the entire future of their nation in the hands of one person? And like, what's, you're going to have thousands of soldiers march all this time, all this way to get to the battle, and then they're not going to fight? They're just going to be like, yeah, let, let him do it. Doesn't seem real. And yet, the ancient historian Polybius, in his famous work, The Histories, written in the B.C. era on the Roman Empire, wrote, many Romans have volunteered to engage in single combat as to decide a whole battle. And it wasn't just the Romans. This might be my favorite one. On January 18th of 1593, the Battle of Nong Sarai, there was a dispute between the king of Thailand and the crown prince of Burma. And so the king of Thailand challenged the crown prince of Burma to like an elevated form of single combat. And when I say elevated, I'm speaking literally because they fought it out on the backs of elephants. And the king of Thailand ended up winning and conquering most of Southeast Asia. But maybe the most famous instance of single combat happened in a conflict between the Romans and the Gauls in 361 B.C. The two armies were camped on opposite banks of a river when it says a Gaul of extraordinary stature approached the bridge between them, challenging uh, the Romans, taunting them, calling for this, their best warrior to come out and fight them and determine the outcome. And so an average-looking Roman by the name of Titus Manlius rose to the challenge, and he administered a fatal beatdown, and the Gauls fled. They probably should have known it was trouble when his last name sounded like Manlius, that he was going to come out and handle some business. But <laughs> single combat, Romans win. But does that sound familiar? An opponent of extraordinary stature, right, challenging an entire army and some average-looking dude comes out and dispatches him. Right? We see single combat in the Bible, famously with Goliath and David, and less famously, just a couple chapters after that, two generals let 12 guys battle it out to resolve the conflict. See, single combat and its variations have been littered throughout history. It's simply uh, vanished from today's conflicts. But one historian closed his thoughts sarcastically with a statement that's kind of humorous on the eve of the Super Bowl. He said, today the need is less urgent, but the practice lives on. It's called the NFL. <laughs> and I'd echo that similar practice lives on. I simply end this sentence differently. That similar practice lives on, and it's, it's called religion. Let me explain. Every culture in the world that we've encountered in history has one thing in common. 
They have some form of religion. Per the ancient history encyclopedia, there is no culture recorded in human history which has not practiced some form of religion. And common and all but universal throughout the history of religion is there are religious rituals and liturgies that ceremonialize our personal devotion. And within those uh, uh, ceremonies, there becomes a religious hierarchy, whether it's priests, witch doctors, uh, mediums, spiritists, whatever it is, there are people tagged to outsource religious obligations to. Y'all go ahead and keep the gods happy for me so I can get on with my life and not worry about it. It's the gist. So unlike cases of single combat found sprinkled into history, this version of religion that outsources worship is almost universal and constant. Instead of single combat, though, it's single ministry. And what does this tell us? Well, first of all, it shouts to us that the human heart was created to worship. You're going to worship God or you're going to worship something. The history of humanity shows us this again and again and again. What does it also tell us? It tells us we are naturally inclined to outsource our spiritual devotion and religious obligations. Naturally inclined to outsource our spiritual devotion and, and religious obligations. It's our natural default as humanity through history. And if it's our natural default, we shouldn't be surprised if we find it in followers of Jesus, if we find it in the church today. Commonly, though, in the church today, it's the concept of a full-time ministry. We hire a minister, the congregation pays the clergy, right, and they do the work of ministry. And as a result in the church today, this idea of being called to ministry has become like this elusive calling. It's become like this, this, this rare error speaks to some rare calling, but these are misconceptions of ministry when you hold it up to the Bible. Ephesians 4.12 says that the pastor and the teacher's responsibility is to equip the saints, which means all y'all in the church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The work of ministry, this call to give our best effort to build the church, the body of Christ, it's for all of us. It's for the whole church. God wants to use you. God wants to use me. But if I were to walk into this sanctuary, any sanctuary in America, right, this weekend and, and just ask the question, show of hands, who feels called to full-time ministry? The hands would probably be sparing. Many of us would answer in a way that's been mis informed by misconceptions of, of what is ministry in Scripture. And I believe one reason the gap between the volume of the early church's witness and its impact is so much greater than our modern church here in the West is our concept of ministry. But we can overcome misconceptions by looking at the church's inception as we started doing last week as Pastor Fred shared about Pentecost. And I'm not going to recount the whole event because he preached on it. You can go back and listen to that. But about 120 believers were in this upper room and the Holy Spirit fell <laughs> in tongues of fire. They started speaking other languages to where a whole crowd gathered, and Peter was like, hey, we got an opportunity to minister. So Peter, off the cuff, he preaches. And I love the, his opening statements. He quotes Joel. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. This verse <clears throat> gets to the diversity of faces that we're going to minister in the early church. Young and old, men and women, everybody. The call to ministry was for everyone. Notably, <laughs> men and women. See, in two weeks, Pastor Vanessa is going to come up here. She's going to prophesy. She's going to preach, and she's going to teach. <laughs> she's going to preach on community and it's going to be exceptional because she's exceptional. But so often in the church, especially the American church, 
We look at, at women who lead in the Bible, preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, and they're exceptions. But we got to look again at the inception of the church. We so often want Pentecost, like revival. We want 3,000 added, and yet we reject Peter's Pentecost prediction that the Spirit would come upon men and women who would prophesy. You know of the six churches that, that met in homes in Acts, that, or just the New Testament that we know of, three met in the homes of single women, two met in the homes of married women, and one met in the home of a man. Make it that what you will. I simply ask, could it be that our witness isn't as loud as the early churches because we've sidelined half the voices? What if we do what we see them doing in the early church? What if instead of zooming into Paul's letter to a church and a situation, we look at what happens at the inception of the church? Go back further to the inception of God's people. I think it's Micah 6, 4, where God says, look, I took you out of Egypt, out of that land of slavery, and I gave you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, a woman, to lead you. But I'm quickly preaching another sermon for another day. Tonight, I want to focus on ministry as our best effort and how ministry can amplify our witness when we all recognize our call to it. Because, again, one major misconception of ministry is, is what happens up here. Whether it's Chris singing or, or Vanessa preaching, that, that's ministry. Happens on a stage in church. But again, two, in two weeks, Pastor Vanessa is going to be ministering from the pulpit. We celebrate that. It's going to be awesome. But you know, Vanessa's worn about every hat in this church. Forget every hat. She's wearing, she's wearing every shirt in this church. The blue SLT shirt, she's worn that. She's led that. The black kid life shirt, she's worn that. She's led that. She's done all of it. And she's done admin that we don't even know about behind closed doors, right? And, and she's done all of it with her best effort. That is ministry. And how many of you know this call to ministry, it's the same for her, it's the same for me. My call to full-time ministry didn't begin a little over 10 years ago when I was ordained as a pastor. My call to full-time ministry started the day I gave my life to Christ. I said, I want to follow you. See, I'm called, I was called, I am called to build the church, to build the church, give my best effort. And the call to ministry is a call for everyone, for everyday people. God wants to use you, your unique life, your unique experience, your unique giftings, your unique personalities to build in the church and build through the church. Think about it. Again, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it fell on this diverse group of 120 people, as Fred again highlighted last week. But in that room, there were probably fishermen. There were probably tax collectors, former prostitutes. Right? There were probably maybe, you know, former soldiers, active soldiers, the poor, wealthy merchants. There were all kinds of people in this upper room. And again, it highlights the fact that the Holy Spirit fell on all of them, not just some religious priests from the temple. God's call to minister in and through the church is the same today. God wants to use everyday people of all shapes and sizes to build in and through his church. See, Pentecost and the birth of the church, it parallels Sinai. And the, the birth of God's people, the Israelites, in the Old Testament in a lot of ways. Now, Pentecost itself, I didn't even realize this till I was studying this week. It's a celebration that marked the first fruits of the wheat harvest. But over time, it became associated with this remembrance of the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Now, in rabbinic tradition, right, in Jewish tradition that rabbis taught, right, not, not Bible, but in Jewish tradition, the, it says the whole world was silent at Sinai, that not even a bird chirped as all of humanity could hear the voice of God inviting humanity back into relationship with its maker. Now, rabbis spoke of tongues of fire that went out from Sinai to all the nations so all people could hear this voice of God in the language they understood. 
And then here at Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit comes down in tongues of fire and settles on these disciples, they begin to speak in other languages. For that crowd, that would have pointed right back to Sinai. And it's powerful because in Exodus, when they first arrive at Sinai, some of God's first words to the Israelites, the first time we see God speaking to a nation of people, a group of people, in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6, he says, If you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you, Moses, must give to the people of Israel. Yet no sooner had Israel agreed to the covenant that they grew impatient with Moses after 40 days and built this golden calf. Right? And as a punishment, 3,000 of them died. 3,000. And at Pentecost, how many joined the church? 3,000. Where Israel dropped the ball as a kingdom of priests and a priesthood of believers from the outset, losing 3,000. The church picks back up that mantle and gains 3,000. But you talk about a kingdom of priests in our modern context. Like priests in our culture are so stereotyped. I feel like horror movies, they got their own stereotypes. The priests are like the, the superheroes, whatever. But most of the time in our Western culture, they're stereotyped by my favorite uh, from Daredevil, Father Lantum. He's your stereotypical priestly character. He plays a supporting role from the background, from the four walls of a church. And then when the hero or the protagonist has a hard week, right, suffers a defeat, is struggling, he'll go to the priest for like words of wisdom, a parable, a verse, maybe for a confession, and he gets what he needs and then it's back to his business and the priest is left in like the four walls of this church to do whatever he does. We think of priests like this. It's an isolated career, a role of people within organized religion. But Peter, who experienced Pentecost and this explosion in the early church, he writes a letter later to the church, pointing to Sinai again in this concept of a priesthood when he writes in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. No longer is the priesthood a matter of lineage and inherited privilege and outsourced access to God. No, we're all called to it. The role and the ministry is for everyone, everyday people, me and you, your mama and your cousin too. And according to Peter, I'm a priest, you're a priest, not in the Old Testament sense of, of living in a temple and performing sacrifices. No, in the New Testament it says we are the temple and our lives are living sacrifices. But one role of priests was representation. They had a lot of roles, right? The sacrifices, all this other stuff. But one of their roles was to bear witness. Not just of people to God, right, performing intercession, performing these sacrifices on their behalf, but also representing God to the people. What the priests were concerned with, what they did, showed people who God was. And then God says to the Israelites, you're not just a couple priests, you're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. Israel was supposed to give a witness on an amplified level that just wouldn't give word to a couple neighbors. No, they were supposed to be a nation among nations, pointing entire nations to who God was and what he was about. And we too, as the church, are invited to show the world who God is, what God is like through our ministry as his chosen people, a royal priesthood, the church, making Jesus easy to find. And notice, in 1 Peter 2.9, it's plural. He doesn't read, you are a chosen priest, or excuse me, a chosen person and a royal priest. No, it says, you, plural, all of you, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, that you, plural, all of you, may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, that word declare 
is used nowhere else in the New Testament. The, the Greek word that Peter uses here isn't used anywhere else. It's translated in a lot of ways. But what we know is declare the praises isn't just talking about what we were doing a minute ago, singing worship songs in a building. No, one translation says we are to shoo forth. Not shoo like this, but, but shoo forth the, 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 the praises of God who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. What that means is we're to take the good news to outsiders. Bear witness outside these walls to what we've experienced. And Peter, again, having experienced the explosion of the church after Pentecost and writing the church in this letter, he says, look, our declaration, our witness is amplified when it's done together as a church. And we see this in Acts in the early church as part of why their witness was so loud. They ministered not as scattered individuals, but together as growing church in local gatherings. And it says right in Acts 2 after Pentecost that they continued gathering. When people gather locally, how many of you know there's roles to be filled? And the church then was growing by the thousand. Can you imagine how many roles there were to be filled and the need for servants within the church? And we see a need arise in Acts chapter 6. Pastor Fred pointed to it briefly last week, right, preaching on diversity because they were correcting an injustice. Right? Food distribution was inequitable because uh, what amounts to racism, Jews were favoring some Jewish-speaking <coughs> Jews over Gentiles. Sorry. The ministry needed correction. It needed leadership, and it needed servants' hearts. And the apostles say in verse 2, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. The New Living Translation says we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. It's hard to get around. Like, is that a, a, a tone of condescension? As if waiting tables and serving the least of these, helping those who can't help themselves, is somehow a lower and less meaningful task than what the apostles were doing? Like, is, is, is that ministry beneath them as, as apostles and spiritual elites? Is it not worth their best effort? But it's interesting when you dig into Luke and the way he writes this passage in the Greek. In, in Acts 6-2, the original Greek, the word for serve is diakoneo. I had to look up so many words this week, how to pronounce them. <laughs> it's also the same word. So it's, it's used in verse 2 for ministering to tables, serving tables. It, it means both in the Greek. And then in verse 4, when they talk about ministering the word and serving the word to the, the church, the exact same word is used. So whether you're ministering to tables... You're ministering off a, a pulpit, the word of God, whether you're serving food or you're serving the bread of life, the, the word of God, it's all ministry. And Luke puts them both in the same boat. And the people they choose, they're told to find people for the role that were full of the Holy Spirit. It says in Acts 6 of Stephen that he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Man, let me go down with that said about me. But again, that reminds me of Sinai. I don't know if we would have done that for the people then, but I preached last summer on uh, the first person in the Bible who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And it happens at Mount Sinai. It happens in Exodus. I think it's uh, chapter 36. And you might think, yeah, if the Holy Spirit falls on the first person in Scripture in the book of Exodus, it's probably Moses. Moses is the guy with the crazy ministry. He's performing miracles. He's delivering the Israelites from Egypt. He's probably the guy that Scripture would say was filled with the Holy Spirit. But it's here that we meet Bezalel. Wasn't a king, wasn't a warrior, wasn't a priest, wasn't a person with a platform and a lot of followers. He didn't get a single word recorded in scripture. He was Moses' like foreman that built the temple. He, he led the construction of the Bible's first worship center. And we often think of, of the spirit of God and connected to its power in the miraculous. And we see it right here in Acts 6. 
It happens, right? We should connect the power of the Holy Spirit to the miraculous. But the first time we see the Holy Spirit and his, it's anointing and empowering somebody to give their best effort, it's to build a place the Israelites could worship God and will meet with him. I want to go down as a Bezalel, not just because he was an artist and I like art. He's a craftsman. I like that stuff. But I want to give my best effort in life to building a place people can encounter God and he can meet with them. Right? But, but ask most people who Bezalel was and you get crickets. But he's the first person in Scripture filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 6, again, we see the Spirit's anointing connected to the work of just humble ministry. Yet these seven tagged to serve in this ministry were essentially the first deacons in the church. The first people we see the apostles lay their hands on and, and anoint as leaders to oversee a ministry. And it wasn't some glorious platform role. <laughs> it was practical ministry for day-to-day, week-to-week service, caring for those who couldn't care for themselves. And I think if you ask most churchgoers who was doing the more important ministry, if there wasn't a more important ministry here in Acts chapter 6, who's doing the more important ministry, the apostles or these deacons? I think most people would probably say the apostles who were preaching and teaching the Word of God. You know, one of my own Bibles in its footnotes says that Stephen was put in an insignificant position, air quotes, as God was, quote, training his servant for a greater platform. I couldn't disagree more because you just turn a couple pages to the right to the book of James. I think James would answer differently than most people in the church if he was asked who's doing more important ministry here. Because in James 127, it says that religion that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And as I was studying, I was just reflecting on, this is the exact ministry, right, that Stephen is called to in Acts chapter 6. And I was struck recently that just we've connected purity, not wrongfully so, but we've connected purity in the church, purity culture to sexual purity. It's not a bad thing. That's in Scripture too. But we often emphasize purity in ways that have absolutely nothing to do ever with what James is pointing to right here, caring for and ministering to the marginalized and the suffering. We made purity about what we don't do, what we abstain from. James ties it to our religion and our worship, the purity of our religion and our worship to ministry. The very same ministry that Stephen was walking in and giving his best effort. It was pure worship. Him being a living sacrifice, ministering however God called him to and giving it his best. It's meaningful ministry. I look around the church, I think about the ministries here, right? Kid life, caring for our kids, caring for our little ones. I think of the gospels where the disciples at one point, Jesus is ministering and they try to keep the kids out. Like, hey, keep them on the outside, keep them on the quote unquote margins, just out of Jesus's business. Jesus is like... What are you doing? (laughs) Bring the children to me, right? When when you are ministering to kids, you are pointing them to Jesus, right? Not casting them aside, but focusing on them, pointing them, ministering to them, pointing them to Jesus, pointing them to the gospels. I think James would say there's a purity of of worship in that. And so with serving on tech, right? Online church, shout out to Ryan doing whatever he was doing up here until about 10 seconds before the countdown, (laughs) right? Tech and online church, providing, producing church online, not just producing church for here, but all the people watching online, people who maybe don't have a church home, they're looking for one, but also, you know, in the season of COVID, the elderly, right, the immunocompromised, new moms, they're able to attend church, be with us digitally because of people serving. I think James would say, you know, there's something pure about that. Blue shirt, black shirt, it's more than a wardrobe you put on to, sh- to serve. You are, you're putting on Christ. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served but to serve. And you won't look any more like Jesus than when you're serving. You could say, based on that scripture, you will never have a more pure, clear, loud witness than when you're ministering and serving. 
Pure religion to James is not about becoming holy hermits. <laughs> it's about putting your hand to the work of ministry, often to the marginalized, and doing it together as a church. It's why these Matthew 25 moments are a thing this year, right? Because of Matthew 25. It's named after Matthew 25, where uh, Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you did to me. But we're rallying as a church to, to rally with ministries, organizations, movements that are going to minister to the marginalized. January was uh, food for the hungry, right, with the food bank, and the MLK drive. This month, get your bottle. There's too many out there. We're going to fill those with change, and we're going to give them to CareNet, this, this ministry that ministers to pregnant women in our area, right? Get your bottle. Fill that thing. There's too many. And then next week, we're going to be collecting shoes for people that need those. It's because of Matthew 25, again, where Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do unto me. So we want to give our best effort to those initiatives and make the greatest impact because God doesn't want to just minister in this church. He wants to minister through it. And we do these things again because of Matthew 25, but also I look at verses like that in James 2 where he ties pure religion, pure worship to ministry to those in the margins. And it's the same kind of ministry again that Stephen was walking in and giving his best effort. And as Stephen and these others gave their best effort to ministry, I love Luke's very next sentence (laughs) reads, so the word of God spread. All right, the number of disciples increased rapidly. The church grew. Another way to say that is the church's witness was amplified. It was turned up. And for city life to have its loudest witness, it will take all of us asking, am I willing to walk in Stephen's shoes? Am I walking in Stephen's shoes? Not to some specific ministry, but am I part of a ministry giving it my best effort? Tonight boils down to a simple point. We're all called to ministry. You follow Christ, you're going to follow him into the church and get involved in ministering in and through that church. So the question I'll leave you with is a simple one. Are you serving in a ministry monthly to continue to build this church together, continue to make Jesus easy to find here in the 757? And let me pause. You might be here visiting. might be one of your first times. You might be watching online. This might not be the church where you do that. right? I don't know that. I'm not going to tell you that, but I can emphatically tell you that God has some church where you're supposed to put down roots and get down in the work of ministry, right, in the family of of God, building his church. And let me tell you, it's not just for the fruit of the labor. There's fruit in your life. When you give your best effort, you'll see some of the best of God. Like like give God your best effort building the church and see what happens. I often think of uh, Jesus' first miracle, the wedding feast at Cana, right? The crowd did not see that miracle. The wedding party did not see that miracle. Those just attending did not see that miracle. Who saw that miracle was Jesus and his disciples and those servants who gave their best effort delivering about 120 gallons of water that he turned into wine. We see something similar with Stephen. I love that his story doesn't just end with his assignment to this specific ministry. We get follow-up. So immediately after where we stopped reading, that as he was serving and giving his best effort, that he did wonders and miraculous signs among the people. We don't get stories about what that was specifically, but we see that when God's call to ministry meets his best effort, in verse 8, he says he witnessed some of the best of God, signs and wonders. And many of you may have continued reading Stephen's story before. You know he was martyred shortly after this in that chapter. He gives his life for Jesus in a most powerful way. Giving his life for Jesus, giving his life for the gospel. And I don't know about you, sometimes I read stories of martyrs and I'm like, how glorious would that be? I don't know if I want it, right? But it seems to give your life for Jesus and the gospels, that, that's glorious, right? But before Stephen gave his life for the gospel, he lived his life for the gospel and for the church. He didn't just die for telling the story. He died because he was living the way 
He was obedient one moment, one assignment, one ministry at a time, giving his best effort to build the early church. And we see the word of God spread, its witness was amplified, and Jesus was easy to find. Again, we want to make Jesus easy to find here in the 757. Whether it's a child finding him in kid life right now, whether it's somebody at home finding Jesus right now on a couch, whether it's finding Jesus at this altar, finding Jesus at some outreach or life group outside of this building, we want to make Jesus easy to find as we minister and give our best effort to build in and through this church. So will you do that with us? Again, will you, will you answer Ephesians 2.10 as Paul writes again, to give our best effort to do the work of God, which he prepared in advance, not for me or you. No, Paul says us to do the church together. But if I could have the worship team come up, we're going to worship, we're going to pray, but let me just close with a, an open door picture of the good news. And let me come full circle to this idea of single combat. Let me come full circle to this picture of David and Goliath. Because when we're reading the Bible for ourselves, a lot of times we can insert ourselves into Scripture. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? But often, you know, David and Goliath, it becomes about me, I'm David. Goliath is my problems. He's my mountain, my obstacle. I got my five smooth stones, whatever those things are. The analogy is for, for me to, 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 to take down Goliath. Nothing wrong with reading Scripture that way. But first and foremost and forever, Scripture is about Jesus. And the story of Scripture isn't about me. It's about a broken humanity and God restoring it again, restoring relationship with him through the gift of Jesus Christ. We'd all sinned. All of humanity had fallen. The wages of sin was death. And yet while we were still sinners and sin and death cast a nine-foot shadow on us like Goliath did those Israelites, Jesus came and conquered sin and death at the cross. He's the warrior <laughs> that engaged in single combat on our behalf. So we don't have to fight. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by some struggle we put up. No, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've never responded to this good news, man, you, say, you might say, I've never engaged in this whole verse 10 about doing ministry because I've never engaged in the verse before it about embracing the grace through faith in Jesus. And let that night be tonight. We're gonna worship. I'm gonna be right here. Then we're gonna step into prayer. We're gonna have leaders down here. If that's you tonight, and you've never accepted the grace of Jesus Christ, then man, let's do it here tonight. You can do it easily online. There's a prayer button. There's a moment that's gonna come up in the chat where you can click, I wanna receive Jesus as Lord. But do not leave this place without praying that prayer and making that commitment. But again, we're gonna step into worship. And Jesus, I thank you. We thank you that you performed single combat against sin and death. God, so that we can receive your grace. We can receive your love. We can receive your mercy. You rescued us and we're not turning back like we sang earlier. And we thank you for it. And we worship you again. And we praise you in this place because you're so worthy and you're so good. And we wanna uh, declare your praises when we leave this place through our lives, through our ministry, but we know it's gonna start when we declare your praises in our hearts. That holy ground where you wanna let your word burn like a flame. So God, stir that flame up tonight as we close in worship. Our hearts are holy ground and we invite you into it again. We praise you in this place.